Hello, everyone. This is Ryan McCormick, host and director of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth radio show. Before we begin tonight's program, I'd like to sit down and do a little fireside chat with you just to tell you about where the show is going, where we are, and uh, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better because I have to tell you that our audience is expanding rapidly. It's fantastic to see how many people listening to the show on a regular basis. And we have some people that are responding and corresponding with us to give us their thoughts and insights. So first off, let me say thank you, Julie, and thank you, Lizzie, again for reaching out. You guys were the first two listeners to reach out to us. Also, I want to say that if you want to call me, please give me a call at 347-960-3539, 347-960-3539. Give me a call. If I don't pick up, just leave me a message. And tell me what your thoughts are about this program. Uh, It's expanding. We'd love to do the metaphysical, metaphysical shows, but also like to do scientific based. I have a full-time job and a family, so sometimes I can't get the shows up as often as I want to. But I would rather take the time to get the shows up a little bit later and making sure that they're at the quality that you've come to know and expect. Also, I want to let you know that um, our show is Building Alliances with other high-quality radio programs and news sites that promote freedom. So it's exciting that uh, we're building up all these alliances, and I feel that you know this show, being the quality that it is, is going to be a component of something even bigger. Hopefully it's going to be part of a movement that further promotes human freedom and further promotes empowerment of the individual. And I just want to tell you that with every show that we do, the number one goal is for you to have a positive experience and for you to, to take something away from it so you can take a tool to empower yourself you know, do something else with your life. So it is a great, great honor to be broadcasting for you every time we air these shows. Thank you very much. It's a little bit about me. Um, real quick, my full-time job is public relations. I do Golden McCormick Public Relations co-founder. So if you ever want to get on CNN, CNN TV, radio newspapers, let me know. I am also very much afraid of the Great White Shark, so I will probably not be doing any shows in the future that have anything to do with sharks because the Great White Shark definitely scares me. I drive my wife um, absolutely crazy. As a matter of fact, I think she wants me to do more shows because the more time I spend doing shows, the less, the less time I'm bothering her. Anyway, it's a real honor and pleasure to be with you. Let us begin tonight's regularly scheduled program. Some people change against all odds, against the grain. Love finds a way. Some people change. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight is a non-metaphysical interview. It is an introspective interview on Mr. Brian Cuban. Mr. Cuban has overcome a life of massive trials and tribulations, self-destructive habits, and he's opened a doorway to a great, fulfilling life. And He offers a lot of tips and advice for people who are experiencing some of the same problems he has. I feel his story is very uplifting. He also has a great perspective on families. Uh, I've worked with this gentleman for quite a while. A lot of people have worked with him. Can't say enough nice things about him. Really thankful we have him on our show tonight. The Adult Limits of Minute Tooth Radio Show proudly presents an introspective interview with Mr. Brian Cuban. Our guest today on the Adult Limits of Minute Tooth Radio Show is Mr. Brian Cuban. He's an author on body dysmorphic disorder, male eating disorders, and addiction, including steroids. He is also author of the best-selling book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And Mr. Cuban is also author of a new upcoming book called The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. Mr. Cuban, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Thank you. So what is body dysmorphic disorder, and how did you know that you had it? 
body dysmorphic disorder is a uh, disorder in the, what's known as the DSM, I believe it's a DSM-5. It is a clinical diagnosis. It's basically when a person takes a small or non-existent defect in their body, perceived defect, and exaggerates it in their reflection to the point where it affects their ability to function, quote, unquote, normally in life. You hear about, you hear more about the term body dysmorphia in the media, but the actual diagnosis is body dysmorphic disorder. For instance, you hear a lot about people getting lots of plastic surgery in the news. That could be as a result of body dysmorphic disorder. People with body dysmorphic disorders develop eating disorders. They develop drug and alcohol addiction. So there are a lot of different things that can go with it. And that is really what it is. It is a diagnosis that affects about 2% of the population, men and women equally. Body dysmorphia itself has been around for 100, about 100 years, but the actual diagnosis has only really been studied in earnest for the past two decades. So I remember seeing an interview. We were talking about how you were bullied when you were a kid and that how some people acted differently and that you, kids, you really internalize it. Was that a main cause of it? Was it other people pointing out certain things about your body and you taking their word for it and kind of internalizing other people's criticisms about you? Is that what everything kind of started? Well, we have to be careful when we use the word cause, okay, because cause has a scientific, def- you know, cause has a scientific definition. It has a, a medical definition. Uh, we don't know what causes body dysmorphic disorder. We don't know what causes addiction. We don't know what causes eating disorders. There is a difference between cause and correlation, okay? There are many environmental triggers that correlate with body dysmorphic disorder, bullying, uh, fat shaming, there are all kinds of things, trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse. We don't know which one of those, you know, correlates more or less with the diagnosis. Does that make sense? Yes, Yes. Yes. There are many different things that can happen to you in your life that can play a part in body dysmorphic disorder, but but we can't say that any one of those things causes it. Now, bullying certainly was a factor in my life. I was bullied uh, severely. I was physically assaulted over my weight. I was a heavy child. I was fat shamed at home by my mom. I was very shy. I was very internalizing of negative things said to me. All of those things went into the pot. We don't know which one of those things, quote unquote, causes it. Mr. Cuban, you said you were very severely bullied. Did that continue on yeah, throughout so your career? Did you see a lot of it? Also, was it also verbal? I mean, this is something that continued on for a long period of time. Uh, yes, I mean, there was a lot of bullying. Like I said, I was a heavy set child, and I was bullied severely over my weight in high school and in junior high. Uh, some people may call it middle school. I. Uh, I was fat shamed by my mom when she would come home and she would, if she saw me eating too much or something, she'd say, if you keep eating that, you're going to be a fat pig. And and I'm not blaming my mom for the things that happened to me. Parents don't cause body dysmorphic disorder. Parents don't cause addiction. Parents don't cause eating disorders. But the home environment is part of the mix, part of the environmental trigger mix. And these were the things my mom had done to her by her mom. She had a very abusive relationship with her mother who was bipolar, according to my mom. So these kind of things get handed down, you know, in the 70s, my mom, these were the tools my mom was given in her relationship with her mom, and these were the things she said to me. And as you can imagine, as a shy child, 
uh, I, these kind of things hurt and I grew depressed and I began to eat more and I grew heavier and it all kind of culminated when I uh, had my, I was physically assaulted at school and had my pants ripped off me and thrown in the street. I was pants. And these kids thought that these pants I was wearing looked funny on me, and they tore them into shreds and threw them in the street down to my tidy-whitey underwear. And as you might imagine, that was pretty traumatic. It was so traumatic that I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA, where I grew up, and show you exactly where it happened. And, well, I can't pick a bright line where body dysmorphic disorder started. That would, That's impossible, and I doubt anyone really could. It's because it's a cumulative process, a cumulative uh, process of environmental experiences. Uh, That is really when I remember starting to feel differently about myself, starting to see a reflection that was unloved, that was just, quote, unquote, fat, that would always be fat, that would never go on a date, that would never be loved by his mother. And all these feelings kind of just came together to create this kind of monster that I saw in the mirror. And really that is when I first remember if I had to pick a time when I started to see a different brine in my reflection, that was then when those things happened. If you were picking less of the two evils, was it easier at the time to have a great disdain for your body as opposed to focusing that energy on the person inside the body? Was it easier to, to focus and channel your, your feelings about your body rather than looking at yourself? Well, at that point? When, you're, when you're 13 and 14 years old, you're not in that kind of mindset. You know, you just want to be loved and accepted. I mean, that's, you know, any teenager except peer group acceptance and love by their parents, you know, are, are primary things, primary drivers. So you're not really thinking about how to channel channel things. You're, you're thinking about how to, you know, how to create an, a, an environment where you're accepted. I mean, I tell kids all the time. I mean, in the right person, acceptance can be as powerful a motivator as drugs. The need for acceptance—it's pretty amazing. I feel like we're in our society where everyone kind of was trying to conform and I guess try to fit into something, and even if it means giving up their own individuality at some points. Based on what had happened to you when you were younger, when you were a kid, did you ever confront any of those people later in life? Did any of them ever apologize to you? Did any of that, um, going back and revisiting some of those moments with some of those people, did that have any kind of healing effects, or have you done any of that? Well, that's interesting you bring that up. When I wrote Shattered Image and first talked about this bullying, uh, I did get some emails from people saying if it was me, I'm sorry, and it wasn't them. But, but you know what? I'm Facebook friends with a couple of the guys who were involved in the physical assault. And I don't. And I get asked all the time if I want to confront them. And the answer is no. I don't want them to remember that. I hope they don't remember that. I would be confronting 56-year-old men, grandfathers, you know, and, and, and maybe in some cases. I'm not, I wouldn't be talking to 14-year-old boys. What would be the point? The only point to doing that would be to make me feel better at the expense of hurting them. I don't see any point to that. This isn't a reality show. Now, what I hope for them is that they have happy lives, have happy children, happy grandchildren, and have raised their children not repeating the cycles of bullying, not passing down the notion that it's okay to do those things to other kids. That's what I hope for them. I want them to have happy lives. 
happy marriages. I don't want them to remember that. That's really uh, that's really great. It sounds like it's coming from a person of high integrity. A person of high integrity would say just what you said. Well, so. it comes to the it comes from a place in, uh, of a lot of therapy. One and two, to let go of anger, you have to forgive yourself, and part of forgiving yourself is forgiving everyone else. I mean. You know, life is a progressive journey of experiences, and that was one of them. It was a hurtful one, but it was also one that was four decades ago. I have no desire to make people relive those things. You know, I wouldn't take it to one place right now. You apparently you had attempted suicide. You got to this really, really dark place, and at that point when you were going there, were you comfortable with your with your decision that you were going to do this and now looking back on where you were at that point and where you are now was getting to that point that truly doctor's point ultimately worth it in the end knowing that you were going to write books knowing that you were going to give speeches and knowing that that dark place would ultimately bring a lot of light to a lot of people's okay. lives let, let me answer that in two parts one looking back at that time in the summer of 2005 again the suicidal fog is real and what I try to explain to people who don't understand it and who think I hear suicide is selfish, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, it happens. People go from – you can go from a depressive thinking about it state to the to a I'm going to do it state in a split second. It happens that fast. And when we hear about people who have, who have taken their own lives – Robin Williams and things like that, and you hear about how they had therapy and they had this support group and this loving family. People didn't know. The problem is, is that suicide, can, in that moment, suicide is very impulsive. It is an impulsive act. And you can have all the support and love in the world, but if someone isn't there at that moment, that's a problem. Wow. So it's kind of – it's not just a trajectory. It's just a, it's kind of the impulsive based on how, I guess, what feeling you are, at what extreme end are you? I mean, that, what the, I guess the best – the most simplistic way to put it is that, fli- that switch flips in an instant. Okay, and I can't tell you why or how, but I can tell you that it was boom, boom, where I was depressed, and then next thing I know, I am – you know, I have a 45 automatic on my nightstand. And so, you know, and, and that's when I when I talk to people who have lost a relative to suicide, I tell them, look, you can't be there every moment. I was so lucky. I was very lucky in that I had a friend who thought something was wrong and called my two brothers, and they came in before I could do anything. So, but a lot of families aren't that lucky because it again, it's impulsive and it happens so quickly. And unless you have the support system there with you. At that moment, or you're, you know, in, or you're in a treatment facility, sometimes there's just nothing that can be done. And I was glad that somebody was there for me. And when you were in that dark place, were you going there because did you not see hope, or were you just fed up, uh, you know, in pain? Like you say one of those two. What, uh, you know, you, you, what's funny about that, Ryan, is that it was such a foggy moment. And when I wrote Shattered Image, I actually went and ordered my psychiatric records from my trip to the psychiatric facility when my brothers came in. That was therapeutic to actually look what I actually said in there. And and I think it was coming from two places. One, I felt completely worthless in that I would never have a future. I would never be loved. I, I just saw no, I saw nothing but darkness. 
Two, I thought I was doing my family a favor because I thought I was just a total burden to them. And so those were the two major thoughts I could remember in a very foggy state. Because you have to also remember there was, I was on Xanax, there was cocaine, there was alcohol. So there was really, you know, my mind was altered as well in terms of, uh, in terms of drugs and alcohol. Well, how so when you... I look back, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry. When I, to answer the second part of your yep. question, when I look back on that, I don't like to engage in revisionist recovery and say, well, what if this has happened? Or, you, you know, do you think things would be different if this, this happened? I'm not glad I went into that state. Okay. When I look back, I'm not glad that I hurt my family and that my family was terrified. Of course not. I, 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 that makes me sad that I put them in that position. But the journey is what got me here talking to you. I don't regret the journey. I do regret the people I hurt, if that makes sense, Got it. in that journey. And in your journey, I, if you're looking at what, you're, what you've done, I mean, you're the author of two books. You're also a very passionate First Amendment advocate. You're an attorney. And it seems like you're speaking. You're doing a lot. I mean, you're, you're being very proactive with your life. It seems like you're taking your pain and you're putting it out as an example to help others. Do you, is there any part of this journey, I mean, do you think that, you said you hurt some of your family members and hurt some of your friends, do you think that they have themselves probably become better people in the long term because they've experienced and been with you throughout this journey? I think they understand addiction a lot better than they did uh, 11 years ago, 10 years ago. You know, I had 10 years in sobriety in April, so I think they certainly, uh, thanks, I think they certainly understand addiction as it relates to families better than they did then. Uh, and if you look out in the country right now, the United States, there seems to be a lot of people. I see obesity to be much greater than it ever has been. And I don't know if it's, it has to do with emotional or people not liking themselves or loving themselves or because the, the fact is that most of the food that we're eating is GMO-related. Where do you see it? Do you think that um, if you're looking at the country, collectively speaking, that there are a lot of problems uh, with body image in this country? That need to be well, 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 Ryan, now we're getting outside of my wheelhouse. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't believe – I'm always very careful about speaking anecdotally unless okay. it's something I actually understand. I don't, I don't know. I haven't read any studies about obesity. Yeah. Okay, so that would be very difficult for me to comment in. And I'm also very careful about that, too, because I believe we should love ourselves regardless of our body type. There's a saying in eating disorder recovery called – say that uh, I am enough, Okay. I am enough, whether I'm heavy, thin, bald, whatever, okay? We can love ourselves regardless of body type. So I don't like to throw out, quote, unquote, obesity unless it's part of a study, a medical diagnosis. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. But uh, getting back to your own journey, was there any kind of faith or philosophy that was something that you were latching onto that you were integrating into your development that allowed you or helped you get to a point of peace? That's a good question. I've never been a, and I get asked that question a lot. I have never been a spiritual person. Uh, I didn't grow up religious. I'm Jewish, but I did not grow up in a religious family. Uh, we, you know, we, the, the, the religious break kind of occurred as happens in a lot of Jewish families at my grandparents' level. My parents did not raise me, you know, in a Jewish home. So I really didn't, uh, I really never, embrace that. I would consider myself more of a humanist. I believe that if I continue to do the next right thing and give back, 
to society on a daily basis. Whatever happens at that time will be okay, <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I, I consider that more of a humanist view than a religious view. Uh, I have, when I went into 12-step uh, for, uh, you know, you have the 12 steps and there is, regardless of what people say, there's a lot of religion in there. And I have rejected most of that, but work the sweat steps, work the steps without even without embracing any of that. So I can't really say that I've embraced any type of philosophy other than to do the next right thing every day to give back, to help other people struggling. And I think if I continue to do those things, then, hey, when the time comes, it's going to work out. That's awesome. I mean, the thing I'm very fascinated by is that I commend you for being a passionate advocate of the First Amendment. It seems that you know what you're doing is providing a lot of peace or pushing the expansion of freedom-based consciousness. If you're looking about that, it seems to come from a very peaceful place or celestial type place. What is the drive for you to be a strong advocate of the First Amendment, whereas if you look at the country right now, at least in the U.S., I don't see many people fully being passionate about the rights or the fundamentals of the Constitution, at least in generations gone past. So what drives you to you know, actively – Well, I mean, that was – well, Ryan, that was something I was more involved in uh, longer ago than I am now. And, you know, I'm more passionate about addiction recovery. Uh, what got me involved with the First Amendment issues was, again, I'm Jewish and I lost extended family in the Holocaust was uh, an issue on Facebook where they were allowing groups that promoted Holocaust denial. And it really wasn't a First Amendment issue. It was an issue of Facebook uh, complying with their own terms of service. So people get a little bit confused about that. But, I mean, I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the First Amendment. And I, I think where people get confused is in private spaces, they think they have a right to say anything, and they don't. <laughs> you know, your, right, your rights only go as far as the rules of the private space. That's not a First Amendment issue, and where I get frustrated is when people think they understand the First Amendment and they don't. I can say what I want on Facebook. No, you, you really can't. Well, you can say it, but you might get kicked off. Facebook has rules about what you can say, right? Twitter has rules about what you can say. That's not First Amendment. Those are private companies. So it's incredible that people are doing that, and they're also revealing a lot of publicly uh, private information about themselves on there. You, um, if you're thinking about your life and your career, I'm just going back to that real quick. If you're thinking yeah. about your life and your career, you've had these battles. You've battled with alcoholism and you've battled, you know, cocaine. How have those substances actually impacted your thinking in the short and long term? Just by experiencing that, was there something that you took from that experience that was actually very positive uh, that you actually were able to see a perspective on life that you didn't see before? Oh, absolutely. I have an un I have an empathy that goes with understanding that I certainly didn't have ten years ago. So, absolutely. I, I am absolutely I have absolutely broadened my ability to be empathetic to the struggles of others because I am now, you know, within the within the realm of uh, addiction and mental health. So they, that, 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 the, the journey has absolutely changed my uh, understanding of the word. And were there any teachers and mentors that you looked up to or admired or you still communicate with this day that you look to? helping you become a better person or look to as teachers throughout your life? My father, my brother Mark, and my brother Jeff. Okay. 
That's fantastic that your family, they're all, they're all there. What have you learned from each of them? What have each of them, like, taught you? Is it, like, uh, from lessons? Well, from Mark, I mean, Mark, you know, people have, have – I mean, I'll say, Mark, for people who don't know, Mark is uh, Mark Cuban, the Shark Tank guy, and the Dallas Mavericks owner. I have learned uh, from him, watching him, that, you know, uh, resilience is learned, failure happens, and you have to be able to pick yourself up and start again and utilize what you've learned. I mean, I have watched him, and he has, you know, been there for me. From my brother Jeff, I have learned the value of the closeness of family, the same thing from my father. And I'll tell you the greatest gift I got from my father. Years ago, he would say to Mark, Jeff, and I, growing up, he'd say, guys, he'd say, wives may come and go, yeah, well, for me, they certainly have been married three times. (laughs) (laughs) But he's joking, of course. He's being tongue-in-cheek. He goes, girlfriends may come and go. He goes, but when push comes to shove, and this was growing up in the 70s, push comes to shove, all you have is each other. And he would say to us, wherever you go in life, wherever your journeys take you, you pick up that phone and you call the other brother. You tell the other brother you love him. You ask the other brother how you can help him. You make sure the other brother, you are there for him. My father was the middle of three children, just like me. He and his brother, Marty, had a car, they fixed cars in the same place in Pittsburgh, PA, from the end of the Korean War until his older brother died in 1999. Now, it was like a bad marriage at times, but it was, it was brothers. It was the bond of brothers. And he is close. He talks to his younger brother who lives in California every week. And he would say this to us growing up in one form or another all the time. And if, and that was one of the primary things, Ryan, that flipped me over into deciding it was time to get sober, thinking that I was close to losing that, losing that bond of brothers that he had given us, Mark, Jeff, and I. And if you want to know how that bond has stuck, that gift of family, that bond of brothers, decades later, 1,200 miles away from where we grew up in Pittsburgh, PA, my father, Mark, Jeff, and I all live walking distance from each other. That is not an accident. Wow, that's great. That is the gift of family that my father gave us. That is the greatest gift that my father gave us. So that lesson that he taught you, that profound, incredible lesson, have you taken that power, that lesson, and have you replicated it? Have you been able to, um, have you started out your own family? Have you taken that and applied it to your workplace? Have you applied that into the fields that you're working with? Have you used that energy to strengthen bonds between the people closest to you? Yes, I mean, I, I, I just got married again in, in October. Yeah, and um, Amanda and I dated for over uh, a decade before we got married. And one of the reasons we dated so long was I had to regain, I had to rebuild the trust that I broke when uh, she was with me for quote unquote rock bottom. You know, Amanda saw me at my worst, and knowing and experiencing the bond between me and my brothers and understanding what it takes to build those bonds, I was willing to do that. And I couldn't do it for just her. I had to do it for me, right? You have to recover for you. And the bond and the gift of family that my bro- that my father gave uh, allows me to better understand other families because a lot of families don't have that. I feel very privileged, Ryan. A lot of families do not have that gift. They don't have that bond. Okay. And a lot of families, family is one of the primary dysfunctional drivers of the inability to recover. 
you know, if there's addiction, alcoholism, does that make sense? Yeah, it does make the sense. Family and... may be, okay. The family may be very dysfunctional. So, and, and every family is dysfunctional to some degree or another, but family in some instances may be part of the roadblock. And, I, and the gift that was given to me helps me better understand when I see that it's a problem. It's really great that your family was there. And if you're looking at your two brothers and you're looking at your father and communicate on a regular basis, do you find that they bring out the best in you and you bring out the best in them, that you actually have some kind of like you know friendly competitive spirits among you because that you encourage each other, that you drive each other? And I ask you that because I'm wondering how important is that to be in a circle of family and friends that are always encouraging and that are always driven? How can that well, happen? I mean, yes. I mean, we were always encouraging each other. Uh, Mark, anyone who, if you want to go to Amazon and look, Mark, Mark's quote is about me is on my book, on the cover of my book about resilience. And uh, so we may not always talk to each other about it, but we're always, you know, supportive and we're always there. I see my younger, but we don't see Mark every weekly, but because, you know, I mean, he's just busy but I, with his traveling and stuff. But I see my younger brother and my father, you know, almost every Thursday for dinner. And we're, I mean, yeah, the, the, that that encouragement is there. I wouldn't say, I mean, how do you compete with a dog? I don't say that there's competitiveness. One, I'm not in the same field as Mark. No, I'm not, I don't own a basketball team. And I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur in that sense. I'm not a tech guy. And you have to be careful too, Ryan, because you can't compete with a dog. I can't be Mark Cuban. Oh, yeah, but if, yeah. But if it's a competing, I meant to say, you know, you're bringing out, bringing out um, the best in each other as far as the characteristics and qualities and, you know, you're, each other's drives, encouraging each other to be successful in your personal and professional. We're, all, we're always encouraging each other. Okay. We're always encouraging each other. Mark, Jeff, my younger brother, works for Mark and has worked his way up into a very high position at Access Television. And so, and, I, and, uh, and, I, and I'm proud of both of them, and I, and I encourage them. Good. Are there any books that you've read that really had a profound impact on you that you would say that would be a treasure trove of information that were able to kind of change your mindset or, or captivate it? Uh, oh, man, because most of the books I read now are about addiction uh, and mental health. Uh, I wrote – yeah, I, there was one it, it, from the addiction realm, one that I really uh, – that really changed some uh, paradigms and how I look at things was a book called Clean by David Sheff. I would highly recommend and is that something that you feel that people who are addicted that that, would be, that was something that they can go into and check out? And you think it offers a lot of simplistic or profound insights on how to basically recover? Yeah, I think I think uh, he offers a lot of insights in in how uh, you know in terms of recovery, in terms of uh, the the loss of his son, and so it, it, I think it's a good book for people who may not really understand or have never read a book about addiction other than my books. Read my books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to bring some of the, the attention of, of the audience, our audience, is that your first book that you have, it's, uh, you know, Shattered Image, My Tribe of Bodies, yes. Dysmorphic Disorder, came out in 2013. On Amazon, 2000, 2000, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, 2013. Okay, 2013. There's a hundred and... 39, 134 reviews, and 93% of them have a five star. It's really, really ridiculous. So you obviously wrote a, a phenomenal book. People really embrace it. You don't see very hardly a negative review about it, and the, these reviews are raving. So congratulations on really connecting with an Thank audience. Thank you. Really connecting. I mean, it's, it's fantastic, and you, you get incredible testimonials for it. But um, excuse me, we have time for just one more question. 
And the question I have is this. If you're looking where you are, you imagine yourself back when you're 13 years old, and you're imagining you see yourself right now, what would you say would be the three most profound life lessons that you garnered in this lifetime thus far? And of those three life lessons that you've garnered, how have you taken each lesson and applied them towards making someone else's life more fulfilling? Well, I, I talk to that little boy all the time, and I can tell you the things I tell him. I tell him, one, you are loved. You are worthy. You are enough. I tell those, I tell the young Brian those three things all the time. Mr. Brian Cuban, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We can learn more about Mr. Cuban by, by going, Mr. Cuban, by going to his website at briancuban.com. Mr. Cuban's got a new book coming out. June 13th, 2017, called The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. And we will post the link on our site. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mr. Cuban. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our incredible guest, Mr. Brian Cuban. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa Caza, and Ms. Constance Dellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of the Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also a specialist in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.